This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. This is the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast with Andy Hill, session number 61. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Thanks for being here today, everybody. Now that Nicole and I are mortgage free, we're moving on to the next big financial challenge of our lives, buy and hold rental real estate. Over the last year, I've been doing my best to educate myself in real estate by reading books and blogs and listening to podcasts on my daily commute. One of the podcasts I've been enjoying a lot is called Afford Anything, hosted by Paula Pant. Paula is an expert real estate investor. She's built an incredibly comfortable life for her and her husband with seven buy-and-hold rental units. They spend an average of about, oh, uh, one hour per week managing the rental properties, and they make an impressive income with that one hour. <laughs> Since Nicole and I are newbies with this uh, rental real estate biz, I asked Paula to join me on the show today to discuss her path from zero units to seven and how real estate has allowed her to truly enjoy a life of pursuing her passions. If you're considering real estate as a passive income source for you and your family, you will not want to miss this chat with Paula. We're breaking down how she got her start and how you can too. After our chat with Paula, we're highlighting another Money Master of the Week. But first up, let's learn how to reach financial independence through buy and hold rental real estate with Paula Pant. Paula, how's it going today? It's it's excellent. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for jumping on the show and having a conversation with us about real estate. So could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your awesome platform, Afford Anything? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, my name's Paula, uh, and uh, I've got a blog and a podcast, both called Afford Anything. The focus is financial independence, so it's not just about real estate. It's about uh the the idea is that you can afford anything but not everything. Uh, and so a lot of it is really themed around figuring out what your priorities are, what your values are, and um, living your life in accordance with those priorities. I think that's great. And I, and I love that line because that says so much in so little words um, because, you know, quite often we're looking for the solution or what's the way I can save so much money that I can you know, have more or what way can I make more money that I can have more? But I really think you've, you've summarized it really well <laughs> with that line. So thank you very much for that motivation. Yeah, we, we, we are here today to talk about real estate, though, because there's so many mm-hmm. things that you cover on your show. I've, I've enjoyed your show for quite a while, by the way. Thank you very much for, for doing what you've been doing uh, oh, thank you. on the podcast. Uh, but yeah, I would love to dive into real estate today. That's something that I'm personally interested in, and I know a lot of the folks that have li- been listening to my podcast have also chimed in saying that they're interested in that as a way to develop some passive income and get that financial independence that you're talking about. So if you're cool with it, I'm going to kind of pick your brain on some real estate today. Absolutely. Let's do it. Awesome. Cool. So at what point did you and your uh, in your in your development of life, decide that real estate was your was your way to go. Wow, development of life. That's yes, very, it's very, that's very generous. It's very big. <laughs> 
I would call it ping pong balling around until something worked out. There you go. <laughs> um, so the, the question was, what, at what point did I decide yeah. that real estate? Yeah, when you did know, you decide I, real estate was for you? I'm not sure if I ever really did decide that. Okay. Insofar as I'm not sure that that was ever a conscious decision. I didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what? Real estate is my path to financial independence. Um, instead, what happened uh, to to make a short story long is um, when uh, I've only ever held one full time regular nine to five job, um, and I left that job in two thousand and eight with twenty five thousand dollars in the bank and uh, really no plan. So I I traveled for a little while and then decided I didn't want to go back into a traditional workforce, and so I decided to become a full time freelancer. I had been a journalist in my previous life, so I decided to become a freelance writer. Um, and at the time, I was renting uh, my then-boyfriend, now-husband, and I. Uh, we were both renting one bedroom within a three-bedroom uh, apartment that we were sharing with random roommates from Craigslist. Uh, and so our rent – and we were in Atlanta, which is a city with – uh, a relatively low cost of living, at least compared to you know New York or San Francisco. So uh, our rent for that bedroom was four hundred dollars for that one bedroom. So when the two of us were sharing it, so our rent was two hundred per person. Deal. So we were living very very cheaply at the time, and I was starting a, a you know a burgeoning freelance career, although career is a generous term for it. Um, he was previously unemployed and he had just started a job at which he was making 40000 a year with no benefits. Um, so we weren't making very much, but we were living very frugally. And uh, I, my goal at that time, so this was 2010, my goal at that time was simply to not go back to a nine to five. Hmm. I didn't have any aspirations of wealth or financial independence. I just didn't want to go back to an office. Um, and so at the time, uh, we noticed that the property across the street was for sale. Now, the property across the street was a triplex. And uh, we thought, you know what, if we bought this, moved into one of the units with roommates rented out the others, and the property was a major fixer-upper. We thought if we did the work ourselves, uh, you know, we could at least establish another form of income that would, um, you know, offset some of our living expenses or create, like, you know, an additional stream of income. It would be a safeguard against having to go back into the workforce. Hmm. Uh, and so that's what we did. We bought this triplex. We had no idea what we were doing. We did everything wrong. Like uh, it was a just a every every decision that we made is like in the hall of fame of what not to do. <laughs> um, but uh, but we moved into that triplex with roommates, and as a result, our out of pocket living expenses became zero. And uh, so when we saw that, and we saw the power of you know real estate and the power of house hacking, we I, I think became a little addicted at that point, and so. Because we had zero out-of-pocket living expenses, within about a year, year and a half, we'd saved up another uh, approximately $25,000 again. And then we bought uh, our second house in cash. That house we bought for $21,000. Wow. And uh, and then it kind of snowballed from there. So there was never really a, a moment uh, in which we made the decision that we wanted to become real estate investors. Uh, just one step kind of led to the next that's great. So many questions are popping out of my head right now. So first one that people mm -hmm. are probably asking is, where did you get this house for $25,000? 
Ah, so in uh, in Atlanta, there are and in really many major cities. Um, not all of them, but many major cities, particularly in the Midwest, in the South, the Southeast, uh, in the desert Southwest, there are a lot of properties that are $20,000, even still. Like I live in Las Vegas, Nevada now. There are a bunch of $20,000 to $30,000 houses here. Uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. In the neighborhood where I grew up, I was just poking around on Zillow uh, the other day. Uh, there are houses for sale there for $40,000. Hmm. So the thing is, a lot of people, unfortunately, there are a lot of um, middle-class college-educated people who only look at college-educated neighborhoods. Hmm. Uh, I call them, um, the, you know, they're, they're neighborhoods that have a Panera Bread. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I call them the, the Panerias or Panerias. the neighborhoods. Oh, I love yeah. that. <laughs> and if you're only looking at the Panera Bread neighborhoods, yeah, everything there is going to be expensive mm-hmm. because you're catering to a wealthy clientele. You know, oftentimes people who are, you know, who can afford to eat a $7 kale uh, salad don't necessarily think of themselves as wealthy because they're not normalized to it. But relatively speaking, you, you have to have a lot of money to be able to support a Panera in your area or to be able to support a Starbucks in your area. Those are not the neighborhoods uh, where I typically buy properties. Tell us about the neighbor- neighborhoods where you typically buy properties then. Mm, okay. So real estate is broadly speaking, classified into Class A, Class B, and Class C. The Class A neighborhoods are the Panera Panera Starbucks neighborhoods. Uh, Class C neighborhoods are places where um, you have payday lenders, you have like title pawn shops, you have... stores. uh, Yeah, exactly. uh, One... um, easy kind of way to check for the, you know, is this a class C neighborhood? Look at the air conditioning units and see whether or not they have a cage around them. Hmm. If people have caged the AC in order to prevent theft, it's probably a class C neighborhood. Okay. Um, And then class B neighborhoods are somewhere in between the two. And then actually, even beyond that, there's another classification. It's called Class D neighborhoods. Those you want to absolutely avoid. Those are the neighborhoods where you don't feel safe going into them even during the daytime. Got it. Well, I live in Detroit, so we've got a few of those Class D neighborhoods around where we are. So, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so the Class D neighborhoods are the ones that people refer to as a war zone. Mm -hmm. And when I first heard that expression, I was a little bit offended by it because I, you know, I'm I was like, how can you call something a war zone when there are places in this world that are actual war zones? And then I went to a legitimate class D neighborhood Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, I understand. Wow. Yeah, I totally understand now. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, uh, windows boarded up, you know, uh, lots of crime, things like that. Yeah, exactly. So a class C neighborhood is really, you know, there there are many... um, really excellent, hardworking people who, you know, work as janitors. They work as tea, they work as baggage handlers at the airport. Uh, they are the people who clean offices at night. Mm-hmm. Um, they need a place to live. And so, so many people who are like, oh, I live in such and such place and there's nothing that you can get here for less than 300,000. I'm like, really? Does your city have janitors? If so, where do they live? Does your city have people who drive, uh, who operate forklifts or bulldozers? Does your city have entry-level carpenters? Where do they live? 
And that's where you look. So you're in you're in the B or C? Yes, exactly. Most of, with the exception of the triplex, the rest of my properties are all in class B or class C neighborhoods. Okay, excellent. Excellent. Well, this helps out a lot. So you 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 bought that $25,000 place and then how did you guys scale from there? $21,000. 21, I'm sorry. I even <laughs> I even rounded up. My bad. Uh, 21,000. Sorry, I don't want to shave you for 4,000. <laughs> so how, how did you guys scale from there after that one? So yeah, so that one was house number two. And then let's see, house number three, house number three, we actually bought for no money down, which is not necessarily a route that I would recommend. Again, my history is a lot of doing things wrong. Um, I wouldn't say that, I, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily say that house number three was a mistake, but I would say it's something that I uh, wouldn't recommend, it was a route that I wouldn't recommend that other people go unless they absolutely had to and or unless the deal was so screaming good that it was a no brainer. Because of so the house- 0% down? Yeah, it was 0% down with a private lender. Mm, okay. Um, so with a, a very high interest rate. High interest rate, yeah. So, um, the, you know, the numbers still worked out. You know, it's still cash flow positive. It has a good cap rate. But I wouldn't do a deal like that again. Why do you think you did it? Just because you were getting the bug and you were like, I got to do this again. I mean, yeah, the numbers still worked out. The cap rate, I don't remember offhand what the cap rate on that property is, mm-hmm. but it's a good cap rate. It cash flows really well. I think ballpark i'd have to look up the spreadsheet but ballpark were probably positive cash flowing around five ish thousand dollars a year from that property that's awesome and you still have it yeah yeah and we still have it so um so yeah it's a good property it was a good deal it's 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 been very profitable for us but again there's that you know, there's always a trade-off between risk and reward, mm-hmm. and the level of risk that you take when you have, you know, with when you have a no money down, high interest loan, is not really necessarily something I would recommend for, you know, most people. Okay. So that was house number three, um, and then house number four, we um, borrowed against the equity in the. Tr- the by, by that time, we had fixed up the triplex ourselves quite a bit. Um, had also been making extra payments on it in addition just from the the rent money that we were getting from our roommates. So house number four, we borrowed against the equity that we had in the triplex, which allowed us to buy house number four. And then house number five, we purchased in cash for 45000 Nice. So you've made your way up in the amount of homes that you've had. And then as you guys are looking at these new homes, are you only looking at buying in cash now or are you still open to other ways of financing? Um, I'm open to other ways of financing, but you know what, Andy, the the truth is I'm really lazy. (laughs) And and buying in cash is just a lot easier because I don't have to fill out a whole bunch of paperwork. So um, I realize that when when I say that I'm more likely to buy in cash, it, that comes off sounding like a smart financial decision um, because I'm reducing my leverage, I'm reducing my debt, blah, blah, blah. Honestly, I'm just too lazy to fill out a bunch of financing paperwork. I'd really, so I'd really kind of rather buy in cash just for that reason alone. I think that's a great reason. <laughs> <laughs> we have, we're dealing with so much other things in our lives. I mean, there's something to, there's something to reducing the amount of stress, reducing the amount of paperwork, uh, reducing the amount of just debt overall that you have in your life, right? Exactly, exactly. And given that there are so many properties, again, in the Midwest, the South and the Southwest, Southeast and the Southwest, I should say, um, that that sell for $40,000, uh, you know, why not buy a property in cash? Yeah, like every one to two years, save up $40,000, buy a property in cash. 
lather, rinse, repeat. Do that once every one to two years. Oh, I like this. This is great. <laughs> How many units do you guys have now? So we have seven units in total. So that's five uh, five buildings with seven units, five, four single family homes and one triplex. Got it. So you have the triplex from the beginning still. That's great. So all of these are located in Atlanta then? Yes, they are all located in Atlanta, and we ourselves live in Las Vegas. Oh, so how does how does that work? How does it how do you deal with being an out of state landlord? Oh, it's actually I far prefer being out of state to being local, because the thing is when you're when we were local, we used to live in Atlanta, and when we were local, it was so easy to cheat and not actually treat it like a business. You know, if uh, if the smoke if the smoke detector in one of our units was uh, needed new batteries it was beeping because it needed new batteries it was so easy for us to just like you know drive over there and replace the batteries and that's it now that we live in las vegas this and i real i use a smoke detector um, example because this actually happened uh living in las vegas we had a turnover in one of our units and on the day of move-in, the property manager contacted us and said, hey, um, you know, the smoke de- it, it's move-in day. The new tenant is moving in and the smoke detector is beeping. The batteries need to be replaced. So, you know, the property manager informed us of this and let us know that she would be calling a contractor who for $25 an hour would drive there, put in a new uh, set of batteries and drive back. So it's like a $75 battery replacement, right? <laughs> now, if we were living in Atlanta, we would have done it ourselves. We wouldn't have paid the 75 and we never would have improved our processes. But because we are living in Las Vegas, guess what happened? The minute that we had that $75 bill for a stupid battery change, immediately I went to my move in, move out checklist and I made a new bullet point on there that said, at the time of you know, move out, check the batteries in the smoke detector. And so now this is part of the process. It's part of the system. So that's the benefit that comes from being out of state. It forces me to treat it like a business. It forces me to turn everything into a standard operating procedure and to really have a process-driven and checklist-driven business that I run uh, in a way that, you know, I... I tried to run it like a business, and I think I did a better job than most at running it like a business when I lived in Atlanta, but there's nothing like living 2,000 miles away that truly forces you to do that. How long ago did you guys move? Uh, Two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago, and you moved uh, with your husband? Yes. Excellent. Do you guys work on the business together? Uh, Yes, we both do. That's good. Yeah, I I should, I mean, there isn't really, at this point, there isn't really a whole lot of work that we do, so I, on my blog, on affordanything.com, I document the amount of time that we spend on the business. And it comes to, in, an, in a normal month, about four-ish hours per month between the two of us combined. So it's approximately an hour a week. I watched one of those videos yesterday, Paula, and it blew me away. That is so cool. I mean, because what you talk about uh, on that video, as well as uh, you know your message in general, is time is the ultimate currency. And mm-hmm. you are... You are working at it in a way where you're going to become extremely rich in time, which is awesome. <laughs> yes. Very, very inspiring. Very cool. Thank you. So uh, some people are probably listening and saying, okay, that's nice, uh, but don't you have to pay these property managers a bunch of money to manage it and you're losing all your profit? How does that work? Ah, so when you run an analysis for a property, always run the analysis as though you are outsourcing 
every aspect of the job. The property, math must always be identity agnostic, which means that you cannot value your own time at zero, value somebody else's time at greater than zero, and make an apples to apples comparison between the two. That's that's just BS accounting. So when you're running an analysis for a property, when you're in the decision-making stage about whether or not you should buy that property, you run the analysis based on the assumption that Every single aspect of the job, the bookkeeping, the accounting, the property management, the repairs, the maintenance, the the major capex, every single uh, piece of the every component of that work is being hired out to somebody else. And if only if the numbers make sense, would you then move forward with the purchase of that property? Hmm. Think of it this way. If you were buying a McDonald's franchise, uh, would you would you? Look at a spreadsheet and say, you know what? If I stood at the cash register myself, <laughs> my profits for this McDonald's franchise would uh, would increase. No, of course not. You know, because you would value, um, you would value it at a minimum. Even if you were to stand at that cash register, that McDonald's cash register yourself, at a minimum, you would value your own time at the fair market rate, at the right. rate at which you would pay another employee, because that way you can replace yourself. And the math stays the same. It is absolutely crucial that anyone who is analyzing rental property do the same. So, um, so even if I'm interested mm-hmm. in managing it and getting my hands dirty in it, I should still factor in the dollars that it would take for somebody else to do it. Is what you're saying? Absolutely. There is. You have to sep- You have to embrace a bit of split personality and separate owner you from worker you, because owner you is the person who makes the profits. Worker you is the person who receives a paycheck. So you could even, if you were to do the work yourself, you could even, if you wanted to, uh, pay yourself as a worker and then see what kind of profits owner you makes after worker you has gotten paid, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Treating it like a business. Mm -hmm. I love it. It Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, another example, like in for for my podcast, I have a podcast editor and producer. I pay him in order to do all of the editing and the uploading and the all, you know, all of the behind the scenes stuff that it takes, um, the behind the scenes work of a podcast. That doesn't mean that the profits in my podcast are lower than they otherwise would be if I were doing that myself. Um, that just means that, that, that just means that I'm running a business really is right. what that means. Well, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and to your point on time, you, you want, you want to be doing things that you want to enjoy anyway. So if you're not interested in editing podcasts or fixing a toilet, then you're, you're, you're putting your time in the right place. Exactly. Very cool. Well, so you're very financially transparent, obviously with your podcast and everything that you're doing on your blog. And I watched one of those nice YouTube videos that we mentioned earlier. Uh, would you mind sharing with the uh, the audience today what your typical cash flow is right now as of late? Sure, absolutely. So actually, so, um, I just looked up our uh, spread. You know, what? I'm going to pull this up so that I'm actually reading the numbers off of the bookkeeping service. Real while... feedback, everybody. Exactly. All right. So <laughs> reports, P&L for 2017. Boom. Okay. So as of the time of this recording, today's date is December 1st, 2017. So this, the following information reflects 11 months worth of uh, profit and loss for calendar year 2017. It doesn't include the month of December, which is ahead of us. So uh, 
Year-to-date income, uh, gross income so far is $115,509.49. That's gross. Um, and then net uh, net profit year-to-date over the past 11 months is $39,411.26. And then you guys so, can analyze the overall time spent as well. I know you don't have to do that right now, but I mean, your per dollar for that net profit of almost $40,000 has got to be insane. Yeah, like I said, we we on average spend about one hour a week doing uh, uh, kind of just overseeing it. But again, that's because that's because we have property managers, contractors. You know, we have an excellent team in place, and I, I give them a lot of the credit for this because they're, um, you know, very hard workers who are, you know, they're they're honest and they're thorough and they're they're good at their job. Hey everyone, just a quick announcement to let you know that I've crafted a brand new free resource for members of the Marriage, Kids, and Money community. This guidebook is called the Young Family Wealth Playbook. I'm taking all of the knowledge I've gained over the past year in interviewing self-made millionaires, personal finance experts, and financially independent rock stars like Paula Pant, and putting it into this seven-step guide to help you win for your family. I'm releasing this in January for free to the members of the Marriage, Kids, and Money community first. If you're interested, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash join. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash join. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? <laughs> if you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. Let's jump back into our conversation with real estate guru, Paula Pant. Very cool. Well, congratulations on your success. And I know you guys are going to continue to build up from there. Or maybe ask, let me ask that question. Are you guys interested in uh, getting more units in the near future? Absolutely. So the next place that I'm looking at is Birmingham. Um, uh, There are some really, uh, well, Birmingham is the top of my list. I've also looked at Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Boise. Well, specifically, the Boise proper is a little bit overpriced, um, but the count, the outlying counties outside of Boise Uh, like Gem County and Canyon County, Mm -hmm. those are the four places that I'm seriously looking at. And of those four, I'm most likely to make my next move in Birmingham. That's great. And and as part of that process, you are spending time in the community, maybe hooking up with the right real estate agent or property managers, things like that? The only community that I've spent any time in is is Birmingham, and I've spent Mm -hmm. exactly three days there. Okay. Um, so actually, honestly, I spent two days in Birmingham one day I flew out to Alabama for three days, um, to, in order to decide if I wanted to invest in either Birmingham or Montgomery. And so I spent two days in Birmingham, one day in Montgomery. At the end of that trip, I decided that I wanted, I wanted to spend time in Birmingham and I found a real estate agent there who I liked. Great. Um, so yeah, uh, my total time spent in Birmingham is exactly two days. <laughs> 
And and really, that's enough. I mean, that being said, I you, before I made that trip, um, I did a lot of the legwork online through email and through phone calls in advance so that as soon as I got to Birmingham, it was like meeting, 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 coffee, 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 coffee. You know, those those were all pre-scheduled. Those were all lined up. So I made very efficient use of those two days in Birmingham. And that's that's how you have to do it when you're managing from a distance or, you know, when you're shopping from a distance. Well, that's so. great. Well, congratulations on uh, your great cash flow that's going on and, and uh, your plans for moving into a new city to dominate. So very cool. Very cool. Um, well, thank you. I, I wanted to ask you a question. So my wife and I have uh, recently paid off our mortgage and we're very excited about it and things are things are going really well for our family. We're thinking that real estate uh, is somewhere we would like to invest in the future uh, with our money. I have received some feedback from individuals because I also have this blog and podcast where I'm openly sharing all this stuff, much like you, <laughs> where um, we've got some extra money and we're saying, hey, you know, we're interested in investing in real estate. And I've got a lot of feedback from folks that uh, think just, you know, don't don't do it. Real estate's too complicated, too risky. Just place your money in the stock market and you know sit back and relax. How would you respond to that? Hmm. Well, lack of information is the true risk. Um, the worst decisions that I see that happen in real estate come from people who listen to cousin Billy um, and don't actually learn about what they're doing before they jump into the waters. So if you don't know how to calculate the cap rate on a property. Um, if you don't have a well-developed philosophy as to whether or not you put stock in the for- in the cash-on-cash cash return formula, and you cannot, you know, if you can't make a critical argument as to your opinion about that, then you haven't done the basic legwork of understanding this field. And if that's the case, then, you know, where you make profits in real estate is through um, your judgment, and you cannot have good judgment if you don't have information, if you don't have knowledge. So um, the risk comes not from real estate, not from real estate itself. Real estate is just an, an inanimate object. It has no inherent risk. The risk is the, is poor decision making. Hmm. And information, information, knowledge, critical thinking is the antidote to that risk. Very cool. Let's talk about knowledge and education then. So where can people educate themselves a little further is there is there i guess let me ask this in a better way was there a book or a resource that really influenced you as you were trying to figure all this out for yourself there's one particular book that i really like it's called from zero to uh uh 360 is that oh my god how many properties did he buy from zero to the how many properties in 3.5 years, from zero to 130 properties in 3.5 years nice. and getting my numbers mixed up. So um, that that was my favorite book. Um, that That's really the best book that I've read about rental property investing prior to when I jumped into it. Now, as a disclaimer, the author is Australian, so you have to disregard everything that he says related to laws and taxes. So just more um, of the theory then. Yeah, it's it's very much a book about the high level, like how to think about uh, rental properties. Uh, the biggest takeaways that I got from it, if you want like the, the quick and dirty yeah. Cliff's Note synopsis, is that number one, to buy um, for the sake of cash flow rather than for the sake of appreciation, because appreciation is speculation. You have no control over what may or may not happen in the broader economic market, but you can control whether or not your house has a positive 
cash flow at the time of purchase. Um, so focus on that income stream. Focus on uh, the the cap rate that your property provides, not on the hope that it might go up in value in the future. Um, number two, that the underlying land is merely overhead. Your profits, your your value in that property comes from the structure itself, not from the land underneath it. And so to that end, if you can look for properties in either that are multi-units in which multiple units are consolidated on the same piece of land or that are located in areas where that underlying land is inexpensive, that's where you are likely to find some of the best deals. Um, those are really the two biggest takeaways that I got from that book. And then the the big thing, so on my blog and on my podcast, I talk a lot about rental properties as well. There's a particular blog post, actually, I don't know if you'd be willing to link to it in the Absolutely. show notes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, there's one particular blog post that walks through how to calculate um, cap rate, how to calculate cash on cash return, all of those various formulas. Um, but the the over years of thinking about real estate and particularly thinking about how to compare a real estate investment to uh, an index fund investment, this is what I have come up with. So the way that an asset gains value, assets gain value in two ways. One is capital appreciation and the other is the dividend or income stream that that asset kicks off. So if you take an index fund, for example, an index fund has both capital appreciation and a dividend payout. And the combination of the two is equals the total return on that index fund, which over a long-term aggregate average is around 8 to 9%-ish, depending on what time frame you're looking at. Now, on a rental property, the cap rate or the capitalization rate is analogous to the dividend on a stock or on an index fund, because the cap rate is the unleveraged cash return on that property as compared relative to the value of an asset. So you look at the net operating income of the property, compare that to the value of that asset, and that gives you uh, the the dividend payout, essentially, of what that property has if that property were held free and clear, so uh, if that property were entirely unleveraged. That's generally your cash flow for the month then? No, that is not your cash flow. Okay. So, um, cash flow and cap rate are two conceptually very different things. Let's okay. table the concept of cash flow for a moment in order to not uh, in order to not conflate the two. In order to kind of keep the concepts clear. Mm-hmm. So cap rate. Um, so okay, to, to you've got a you've got an asset, right? You have any asset, asset X, and that asset produces um, an income stream. That income stream has certain operating overhead. And then after that operating overhead is paid, you have what is known as the net operating income, which is the net income after all of the operating expenses are paid. Mm -hmm. So that net operating income relative to the value of that asset is the essentially the dividend that that asset provides. It is the income stream that that asset provides. So expressed as a percentage, if the net operating income relative to the value of that asset is, say, 6%, then you've got an asset that provides a 6% income stream. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to decide to finance your way into that asset, well, then the cost of financing will affect the cash flow that ends up in your pocket, but it will not fundamentally affect the dividend that the asset provides. So you want to separate your analysis of the performance of the asset itself from the financing terms that you would choose to 
accept in order to acquire that asset. Hmm. In other words, at 0% financing, a lot of uh, bad assets might look good. And at 99% financing, a lot of great assets might look bad. In order to not muddy the waters, you want to separate your financing arrangement from your understanding of the asset itself. Um, if the asset is a strong performer, then at that point, you want to look at how can I acquire it. Um, but if the asset is not a strong performer, you know, one of my expressions is never, never buy something with a loan that you would not want to buy in cash. Hmm. So you want to understand the way that a property would perform in cash in order to understand the dividend payout that it has. Now, going back to our previous conversation about index, comparing index funds versus a rental property. So as I mentioned, any asset gains value in two ways, capital appreciation and its dividend payout. So with a rental property, your cap rate on that property is the dividend payout that that property provides. Again, it is the unleveraged dividend that the asset itself, it's the unleveraged income stream that that asset itself is producing. So um, if, for example, that cap, the property has a 6% cap rate, that, and you assume that it keeps pace with inflation, which historically has been about 3%, then the total return on that rental property might be 9%, which is expressed as 6% dividend plus 3% uh, keeping pace with inflation. So in both cases, you might have an index fund that returns at 9% and a rental property that returns at 9%. In those two examples, you've got two different assets, both of which are producing 9% returns, but they're producing those returns in different forms. The rental property produces those returns predominantly in the form of a dividend payout or an income stream, whereas the index fund produces those returns predominantly in the form of capital gains. Same 9% total returns in this hypothetical example, but expressed in different ways. And the reason, by the way, that you don't want to conflate financing is like, all right, let's look at an index fund. If you were to take out a loan and use that loan to buy an S&P 500 index fund, you're not going to say that that index fund therefore has lower profits. The index fund produces what it produces regardless of how you got the money to buy it. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. I appreciate you walking through that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. The other, the other side of, of, the, of that conversation is also the tax advantages that, that come with uh, real estate. Do you find that's another reason that you are into real estate as well? No, it's not. So my philosophy around that is that you should make an investing decision based on what you think will get you the best returns relative to the amount of risk that you're willing to take on. Um, and then once you make your investing choices, figure out how to t tax optimize those. Hmm. So in other words, don't let the tail wag the dog. Um, so I, I think that a lot of people make decisions based around tax optimizing, but leading with tax decisions first is a is tail first and then dog. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, makes a lot of sense. So, so you're you are obviously a real estate investor, but you are also investing in other parts of your life to have some good income stream diversification. So, uh, are you also investing in the market, stock market as well, outside your business too? Oh yeah, absolutely. I love index funds. So uh, I've got uh, a Roth Solo four hundred one k. And I used to have a Roth IRA. Um, I can't contribute to it anymore, so I have, a, I have an existing Roth IRA. Um, and I also have a few at E-Trade and then at a couple other places. I've got a few old taxable brokerage accounts that I've been meaning to 
sell out of those and move them over into Vanguard. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. So yeah, I've got uh, money kind of placed around everywhere. Very nice. In the the broader stock market. Cool. Very cool. And then uh, obviously you're using your business platform to to grow uh, income for you as well. I do. Yeah. I've got, uh, I've got the blog. Um, I've got the podcast. So yeah, I've, I've got, uh, those two as well. Very cool. Is there a, a favorite income stream that you have of, of those three? Well, I don't really think of, I mean, I don't necessarily think of the blog and podcast as an income stream. I mean, they are incomes. Well, actually the blog this year is probably going to be, a uh, be in the red because I'm investing a lot of money into developing a course. Oh, cool. Um, so the blog this year is actually going to take a loss. Um, the podcast is, is profitable. The podcast at this point will probably, um, if 2018 is the, you know, if I go into 2018 at the same rate that I am earning it right now, podcast will probably bring in around 40 to 50,000 next year. Nice. Um, but I, you know, with podcasting, both blogging and podcasting are such creative endeavors, Mm uh, that it's, I don't really think of those as an income stream, uh, even though they produce income, but to me, they are my, my art, um, rather than my investment. Um, you know, so it, I feel with the blog and the podcast, I feel a bit more like, uh, like a furniture maker or a songwriter or an artist who is supporting themselves through what they create, but for whom it is just fundamentally much more than just that. Whereas with the rental properties to, you know, to be perfectly honest, the rental properties are a means to an end. The rental properties are purely, um, you know, an, an income stream that allows me to spend my time taking more creative and entrepreneurial risks in the areas that I'm actually passionate about. Well, that's great. So you, you have the real estate to fund the enjoyment that you have with the blog and the podcast. Exactly. That's great. Well, congratulations on developing this life for you and your husband. This is, this is a lot of fun to have this conversation with you and, uh, learn about your life as well as how people can be successful in real estate. So one question before we head out Obviously, education, we just talked about that being a really huge part of investing, uh, investing in real estate. Um, If you had one piece of advice to kind of send people off today, if they're considering buying their their first rental property like you did back in 2010, uh, what would be that piece of advice you'd leave with them? Mm, Which just one, geez, Uh, appreciation of speculation. So never buy for appreciation. Um, And calculate the cap rate. Those are, those are my two pieces of advice. That's good. Two's good for me. <laughs> Very cool. Well, Paula, thank you so much for taking time with me today. I really appreciate you uh, uh, breaking out your schedule and, and, and chatting with us about real estate. Wh- where could people learn more about you and connect with you on your journey? Sure, absolutely. So the Afford Anything podcast is where I uh, cover real estate as well as all kinds of other financial um, topics. And then the Afford Anything blog, which is at affordanything.com, is uh, where I do the same. Excellent. Well, I will put both of those in the show notes. And just to let everybody know who's listening, the podcast is awesome. I've spent a lot of time on the blog as well. But everybody, if you really want to learn about how to control your time and win with money, 
Paula has an incredible podcast that you should really listen to. So I'll definitely put that in the show notes for everybody to enjoy as well. Thank you. So Paula, you have a great day. Thank you so much for taking time with us. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. What an incredible lesson in real estate investing. I, I really hope Paula's success in real estate and her many other income streams for that matter get you all fired up about boosting your income in the near future. When Paula went through her analysis of class A through class D neighborhoods, I thought I'd give myself a little bit of homework to ensure that concept sunk in for me. I spoke to some friends locally here that are in Metro Detroit who also invest in buy and hold rental real estate. And I got some advice on solid class B slash C neighborhoods for Nicole and I to consider in the future. After that, I went on Zillow to investigate some general pricing in those neighborhoods. And uh, Nicole actually even took a drive into one of those cities last week and confirmed that she could see us investing in that area. There's no no Paneras, <laughs> yet no locked cages on the AC units. So thanks, Paula, for those uh, words of wisdom there. I even started to get an understanding of typical rents in the area from searching on Craigslist and speaking with other landlords and renters. So it was it was actually a fun little exercise, great first step for us and a great learning process and, and a lot of fun. So first things first for us, we're going to save up a lot of cash for the next year or so. I am a... Uh, I don't know, maybe a little debt averse kind of guy. (laughs) But anyway, um, either way, whether we whether we finance it or buy it all in cash, uh, we're going to be ready to pull the trigger when we find the right deal. And for finding the right deal, I'd highly recommend reading the article that Paula mentioned during the show. I'll place it in the show notes. The article helps you understand the 1% rule, cap rate, cash on cash return. These are all excellent ways to analyze a deal. And as Paula warns us in the article that you guys will all read, your success or failure as a real estate investor happens before you buy. Now it's time to announce the Money Master of the Week. Drew, who blogs at Guy on Fire, recently broke the half-million-dollar net worth mark and locked down his fourth rental property. This guy, this successful guy, is 27 years young. Unbelievable, man. This is is great. Super inspiring. Drew is building wealth with buy-and-hold rental real estate, and he's actually doing it in a pretty unique way. If you remember Paula, when she mentioned the term house hacking during our interview, that is one of the main ways Drew is increasing his passive income and pushing his way towards financial independence and early retirement. I'm going to let the house hacking expert break it down for you. House hacking is a property that's owned, uh, that you own and live in, and you rent out the extra space that could be extra units in the building or extra bedrooms. Uh, So I live in a five-bedroom house hack currently, and I rent out the other four bedrooms to my roommates or my tenants. Mm -hmm. And uh, they pay uh, for my mortgage, and I have uh, cash flow left over. That's awesome. How has house hacking and real estate investment helped you build wealth? It's been great. So the average American spends somewhere between uh, one-third to half their budget on housing, So through house hacking, I have eliminated my housing expenses, and I actually get paid to live in my house. So with that, uh, instead of having, call it a third of my income go out the door every month, I can save all that money that would be going towards 
living expenses, plus get paid to actually live in my house. And I've increased my savings rate to probably about 70 to 80%. Wow, that is incredible. Very cool, man. So how, how did you meet these guys that you're living with? Are these random dudes off the street or people you knew before? Or how, did, how did that all work? So I'm in my second house hack. My first house hack was friends. The second one was actually uh, just random Craigslist roommates throw up an ad and uh, see who bites. Well, that's great, man. That's great. So you use the handle guy on fire and the F-I-R-E is all capitalized. So you are on this financial independence track. Is that right? I am. Very cool. So why, why is financial independence uh, important to you? Well, life's too short to uh, work for a man and be confined to a cubicle for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. And I also hate wearing a tie. I consider it my corporate noose. <laughs> do you have to wear a tie for your uh, your day-to-day job? I do, unfortunately. Oh, man. Yeah, that is a corporate noose. <laughs> so where can people follow you and learn more about what you're doing, buddy? So on Twitter, I'm Guy on underscore fire. They can also send me an email at guyonfire.us at gmail.com. And my blog is guyonfire.us. Very cool. Well, I will link to all those in the show notes. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your awesome win, bud. Thank you for having me. Thanks for connecting, Drew. If you want to follow Drew's success in house hacking, building his net worth, and pursuing financial independence, check him out at guyonfire.us. Drew. Congratulations on being our Money Master of the Week. If you missed some of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, I've got you covered. Go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 61 to check them out in the show notes. MKM friends, I've been honored by Rockstar Finance to take part in a holiday experiment to go out in my community and quote unquote do some good. They've given me $100 and set me loose. <laughs> After speaking with Trey and Peyton and the MKM community, we came up with the idea of handing out a $100 bill to a random person who needs a blessing in a low-income neighborhood in each of our areas. So Peyton's in, a couple of my friends locally here in Detroit are in, Nicole and I are in, we're throwing in a, another um, $100 bucks on top of Rockstar Finance's $100. And uh, we're going to go out and bless somebody, have some fun, you know? I'm asking you to join us in this quest. Please bring some joy and happiness to a neighbor in your community as well. If it helps, you could even say that you're part of like like a secret Santa society. That's pretty cool, actually. Secret Santa society. And uh, you've been tasked with blessing somebody today. So if you can spare the 100 bucks and you want to join in in this fun quest before Christmas Day, everybody, please email me and tell me that you are in. I want to feature you, your name, your, your story, and how it all went down uh, when you gave that money away on my podcast next Monday on Christmas Day. So that's uh, December 25th, next Monday. So shoot me an email at andy at marriagekidsandmoney.com. Let's bring some joy all across the country. Hey, Maybe even outside the U.S. too. I see you listening, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, and India. I see you. <laughs> In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Abraham Lincoln. Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. Let's practice, prepare, and educate ourselves, everybody. Carpe diem. Carpe diem.